Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IEQ Radio, for Friday, August 20th, 2010. Episode 178 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Cliff Slotnick, known as the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes is joining us today from Studio C in Central, Pennsylvania, Central City, Pennsylvania. We also have at the controls, Intrepid Environmental Annie. Good afternoon. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with Lisa Wagner and Jim Pemberton, uh, halftime with IEQ radio contributor Pete Consigli and Glenn Fellman, uh, the roundup with IEQ connections Glenn Fellman uh, and IEQ contributor Pete Consigli. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IEQ radio website each week after the show. Check it out at www.ieqradio.com. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N. Com. And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management, who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. You can also download the show by going to our website, which is www.ieqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show. The show is also available from iTunes. Don't forget, you can get your ABI HCM points, your IICRC continuing education credits, or ACAC renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. Email uh, Joe, I'm sorry, at joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Our email addresses are also on the homepage of iaqradio.com. Last but not least, please visit the IQ Rate Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com.
win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can just text in your answer. Congratulations. To Joe Appleby, Appleby Cleaning in San Leandro, California, for answering last week's trivia question by naming Horatio Alger as the American author who wrote stories of achieving the American dream through hard work, courage, determination, and a concern for others. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, August 20th, 2010. It is error only and not the truth that sh- I'm sorry, it is error only and not the truth that shrinks from inquiry. A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. The most formidable weapon against errors of every kind is reason. If we do not hang together, we shall surely hang separately. Namely, author, pamphleteer, radical, inventor, intellectual, revolutionary, and one of the founding fathers of the United States, who has been called a corset maker by trade, a journalist by profession, and a propagandist by inclination. Now let's talk about our guests. Lisa Wagner is a second-generation rug care specialist and co-owner of San Diego Rug Cleaning Company with her mother, Kate. She's a rug care columnist for Clean Facts Magazine and a hands-on rug trainer in the cleaning and restoration fields. She served a decade on the board of the Carpet and Fabric Care Institute and has served on the IICRC board and on the RAA Textile Council. And for the past 11 years, she has been a strategic marketing consultant and a coach for Piranha Marketing. Let's do her intro music. Our second guest, Jim Pemberton, has a lifetime of experience in the cleaning and restoration industry. His background in the dry cleaning, carpet cleaning, and disaster restoration industry spans four decades. An industry trainer since since 1979, Jim has presented classes in a variety of cleaning and restoration subjects nationwide. Jim is most recognized for his knowledge in upholstery cleaning, being being a second-generation fine fabric care expert by following in the footsteps of his father, Lee Pemberton. Jim most recently has teamed up with Lisa Wagner to present a combined rug and fine fabric clean training series called Textile Pro Training Seminars, soon to be available in both classroom and online training sessions. Jimmy's intro music. Do you smell that? Do you smell that? Nothing in the world smells like that. Oh, how I love the smell of perchloroethylene and glycol ether in the morning. Smells like cleanliness. All right. Both our guests with us. You can bring Radio Joe on as well. and we'll start. Hello, Cliff. Hey, how are you? Hello, Lisa and Jim. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Okay, well, let's start out with Jim. Jim, many of our listeners are engaged in the indoor air quality field. Why should they be interested or care about cleaning and maintenance of flooring materials and furnishings? Well, Cliff, floor coverings and and furnishings act both as filters and repositories for pollutants. 
and whether or not they're maintained or not has an influence on the indoor air quality of the building or dwelling that they're in. One of the things that Lisa and I both believe very strongly is that these things should be cleaned in, in fashions that not only remove the most soil or contaminants, but also leave the least residues behind. One of our focuses is to pull people away from cleaning things that leave uh, detergent residues or solvent, dry solvent residues that really just replace one pollutant with another. Joe? Lisa, you've been raising awareness about issues uh, that concern you by, with your blog here, and um, I recently checked out your blog. It's very interesting and very well done. You also write articles, and um, you're a frequent contributor to industry publications. What's your motiva motivation for all this contribution to the publications and also for starting your blog? Well, well first of all, thank you guys for having me on. Um, the motivation <clears throat> it is uh, actually it was coffee-inspired one night. Um, I was uh, reading a white paper from Deborah Lima from Racing Industries, and she had laid out some concerns about the uh, CRI's seal of approval program and their testing methodologies and kind of just laid out a lot of factors that um, she had concern with. Had taken the time to actually go out to uh, some of the carpet cleaning forums and get some input from a lot of the hot water extraction cleaners that are out in the field. Uh, racing industry produces hosts and, and some of the dry compound cleaning systems, which uh, I admired that stepping into uh, another method roundtable to, to even get some response back. And there was universal interest in uh, the failures of, of that program. And I sat back and, and saw the response to that paper, which she put a lot of time in, and there was a lot of uh, input from other people on. And it was pretty summarily just kind of dismissed in a press release from the president of CRI as these are issues we've already handled. You know, we don't need to go back and, and revisit it. And basically, already being handled meant we had already dismissed them, so don't bother us with it. At least that's how I read it. So I sat back and I thought, okay, these are some seriously, I mean, some valid, uh, you know, disputes. And other, many other cleaners had brought up additional ones as well. And, you know, in a very formal, very detailed, very polite presentation, it was just summarily rejected. And so I thought, well, if they're not going to listen to someone who politely present something and even treat her in a respectful way, then maybe if something was a little more in their face and presented with good marketing behind it, which I'm very skilled on the marketing side, maybe they'd pay attention then. So that was one night, decided that was what I was going to do, and I launched the blog, and uh, we get, um, you know, we've had thousands and thousands of cleaning professionals visit it and uh, add their comments, and we've been crafting some, hopefully, some great solutions to come out of that. You know, you know we, go ahead, Joe. If, if you don't mind, just have a quick follow. Um, we, first, we put a, a link to the blog on the announcement for today's show for those that aren't familiar with it. Um, it's great reading. And second, the acronym police must be at the donut shop. Could you tell us what CRI stands for and, and uh, real briefly who that is for those that aren't aware? Well, CRI is the Carpet and Rug Institute, and it is an association that represents 
uh, the manufacturers and, and the retailers of, of carpets and rugs. Okay. Thank you. Cliff? Well, we were going to cover who CRI was later, but no problem. Um, let's talk a little bit about the you know what happens when you raise awareness and what happens when you do a blog. You probably get reaction from people on both sides of the issue. Can you kind of comment on you know the feedback you've get from people in the industry, vendors, manufacturers, CRI, whoever? Well, I, I've gotten no response at all from CRI, okay. so, and I honestly I did not expect any because they're a very big organization. I consider them a big bureaucracy. I don't. Uh, you know, just the way they've been dismissive with many of the other issues, I did not expect them to say, hey, you know, there's some valid concerns here. We should have a dialogue. We should actually bring cleaners into this conversation. So I didn't expect that. But some of the conversations that we've had regarding the training within our industry and with IICRC, which is the Institute of Inspection and Cleaning Restoration Certification, um, do I get extra points for that? Yeah, you do. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, you know, we, we brought up some a lot of dialogue about uh, different issues um, with uh, that organization, with how training is, is being performed today, um, with different issues of conflicts of interest and different ways that policies are developed. And there's been a, a really good back-and-forth dialogue. There's, of course, people who are the detractors who are going to post that everything is you know, has, has evil behind it, and they're not going to support anything. But um, there are also many, many people, myself included, who definitely see the value of um, these organizations, just want to clean up house a bit and make sure that it's more reflecting what's not only best for the cleaners and the restorers involved in providing these services, but also what's best for the consumers that we're delivering that to. So th the reaction's been... Um, a lot of people very interested in wanting to say their piece. I've gotten a ton of emails of, of people wanting to help. And uh, it just really shows me that there's a, a kind of a groundswell of people who want to make something good out of this. And though my blog is a little in your face and uh, hopefully entertaining to read, um, what it's doing is it, it's helping uh, get people to actually stand up and and want to step into the game and help. You know, there's always a criticism that complaining about issues doesn't really contribute to making things better. Have you and or will you offer suggestions for making things better? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's not going to be, you know, this is what Lisa thinks, so we need to do that. I've been very open on the blogs and on any forum postings that I've made within the industries on uh, I do not know what the right answers here are, and, and I'm gathering as much data from people and suggestions from people as possible because what I don't want to do is, and this is actually a failing in the style of, of some of the courses that are taught in our industry, of somebody thinking that they know it all and imparting that as this is the only way to do it, whereas I think the better way to learn and to actually grow and develop is to have a dialogue with the parties and come up with a mastermind answer that's more valuable than just one person thinking they, you know, they know what it is. So, yes, solutions are being crafted and suggested. Whether they're acted on, we'll see. That's coming from the organizational side. Okay, Joe. Yeah, one quick follow-up, Lisa, on that issue. Um, 
you mentioned you're getting a lot of email. I'm just curious, who has responded the most? Is it the, the cleaning professionals in the industry? Is it association figures? Is it, um, you know, do you get any response from the consumers? Well, you know, I do have, I have not had any consumers visiting the blog per se as far as ones that have reached out and contacted me. Um, it's primarily cleaning and, and restoration professionals who are who I'm plugged in with through, um, you know, through the magazine that I, I write for, Clean Facts Magazine, and the forums that I'm, that I'm on and sharing uh, education on rugs. So my audience through those channels and also with Piranha Marketing, we represent thousands of, of cleaning and restoration professionals as well as far as our business building programs. So my audiences are all that world. Um, I have had some association representatives contact me, of course, people through CFI, who I have a long-standing membership and affinity for, um, and limited conversation with some of the ISRC board members, though not much from the executive council. Let's change subjects, uh, and I know that this is a subject you're passionate about, Lisa. What would or can you give me a definition for the term conflict of interest? Well, you know what I did was um, because I've always just kind of known what it is and, and didn't really put words to it. So what it put up on the blog when I pulled it from the dictionary was that a conflict of interest is a conflict between the private interests in the official or professional responsibilities of a person in a position. And um, in my head, at least when I was serving on the ISRC board or serving on CFI's board um, or any other nonprofit, it's always come back to me if it in any way puts a buck in my pocket or gives me other type of, of uh, tangible value um, for myself, for my family, for very good friends or business partners, there's a conflict there. Now, I don't know if that's an accurate gauge for defining what conflict of interest is, but I'm, that's just how I've always played it out. I always reveal when I feel that there's a, a murky area there, it's always better to be safe than to be sorry. Joe? Lisa, um, going a little further into these conflicts of interest, where do you, you know, where and what do you perceive to be some of the more obvious or flagrant conflicts of interest within the cleaning and restoration industry? Well, a couple that I put, that I wrote about, um, that I'll just use, and I'll just give two examples. And I'm not saying that anybody that has a conflict is, you know, doing something illegal or unethical. It's just kind of <clears throat> in that gray area where uh, I feel that when you're holding a certain position, you need to um, be doubly responsible just in, in making sure that, that everything's nice and clean. Um, so one thing I posted that I made was, was that in an instance where uh, a standards chair had actually, um, <clears throat> within ISRC, had designed the RFP, the request for proposal for a particular um, test that, that he was looking to get some funding from ISRC towards, and um, the chair that actually designed the RFP was one of the two proposals that was presented to be reviewed. And though the person is very knowledgeable, um, 
to me, that just says if, if you're the one designing it, that's almost feels like insider trading to me. That just seems like an area that is uh, not clean. <clears throat> so that's one that I wrote about. And the other one that I had ongoing with while I was on the board there um, was simply this, this persistence of not having any bids for particular contracts, the biggest one being management, um, because it just seems like good business practice to me to go out and see what the going rates are, what different varieties of services are. And, it, you know, my feeling is that when you get a lot of people on a board who run small family businesses who are used to doing business with their friends, which I'm guilty of that. I mean, I, I like to work with people I like. And so with my for-profit business, I absolutely discriminate in that regards to I like to do business with people I like. Um, when you're in a nonprofit or any other organization where you're spending somebody else's money, I think that there's a responsibility just in terms of good business practices to uh, bid things out and make sure that you're choosing not what's best for this is a friend of mine, this will be great, but, you know, this is what's best for the business. I've got a question, and, um, you know, you and you or Jim or both of you can, can comment on you know, in certain situations, things start small, and they're really, I mean, a lot of groups are run on handshakes. They don't necessarily have any formal contract, and because it didn't start with a formal contract, um, it can sometimes be difficult. And, you know, the people that have the contract, you know, might think, well, they don't trust me, or, you know, want, you know how do you think you can get through this, you know, having a situation where there weren't bids before, you know, how do you prepare the incumbent uh, in the proper way that you want to put things out for bid? Jim, you want to take that? Yeah, I, to speak to that, Cliff, unfortunately, no matter what type of friendships existed or uh, previous arrangements were made, an organization just has to decide in maybe sometimes a draconian fashion that the future is today and you just have to move forward. Uh, the, the concern that I have, and I think more people should take a look at this, you have to think about how these associations, organizations, certifying bodies start. And they need volunteers. And, and generally the volunteers are people that come in with an expertise, uh, some forward-thinking ideas. They're people that are, are motivated to contribute to the industry that takes care of them. That's all good stuff. The problem is inevitably if those same people that have those strong interests and those strong desires to uh, to be a part of a group get too deeply into it, the next thing you know, these, these opportunities that become conflicts of interest are, are going to arise. And I think the responsibility actually starts with those individuals. That individual, before they volunteer for a position, or if they're already within a board of directors, before they become a chairman or in charge of a task force or any consulting arrangement, has to look within their own heart and make some decisions because, as Lisa so well said, a conflict of interest does not have to be illegal, does not even have to be seen as unethical. But nevertheless, if it's perceived as a conflict, it doesn't just hurt the organization. Frankly, it hurts the individual. And they have to see, if nothing else, from a selfish point of view, that it's not in their long-term interest to be put in that position. Now, there are times when such people get a feeling of entitlement or deservance. Well, look at how many years I've done so many things for you. Well, that gets into doing business with friends. 
when, when for too long a group has people that they feel they owe something to, then sometimes they're blinded and they make decisions that aren't in the interest of anybody. This is where I, I enjoy seeing organizations like the NFCRC now working with outside consultants, people who actually aren't a part of our industry like our new president, and they bring in fresh ideas, but definitely they do not bring in conflicts of interest. Before we close out uh, the subject of conflict of interest, is there anything that either of you would like to add or, or say uh, on the subject at this point? I think one of the areas to um, alleviate the conflicts is exactly what Jim just brought up, which is um, you know the longer you're there, the, the more it, it, it seems like you're um, – part of the furnishings and that you're just always going to be there. And there's a, there's a danger with the length of time that you're in a group and your um, leverage over that group. Because if you're in a position where you've been on the board for 10 years or 20 years and the new people coming in uh, just kind of relinquish what they're doing to the person who's seen as the wise person on the board, that can be... Um, a dangerous amount of too much influence in one person. And I know, I know that was one of the reasons why I stepped off of the CFI board after 10 years, almost 11, was I could see how with um, the right kind of confidence and, you know, really feeling like you understood everything so well, which you do as, as you're there a long time, um, that you have a lot of influence over new people. And on a board, that means influence over votes. And uh, it it just got to the point where I was being deferred for certain answers at, at too often. And I realized that that was a danger for the organization. And so I stepped down because of that. Um, and I think if everybody is just open about that and seeing their role on a board, they can get to that point where, you know, maybe term limits are a good idea. Jim, do you want to say? Well, go ahead. I was going to ask no, I, feel, I feel Lisa summed up everything I would say. All right. Just can, I, can I add one point, just real quick here on this? Um, you know, I'm I'm just so happy that uh, Lisa has done what she's doing. I know Jim, you've uh, also been, you know, working hard on the the whole conflict of interest issue, and and I just want to emphasize that you know this is not just happening in the cleaning and restoration industry. I've been fighting what I consider to be real strong conflicts of interest in other certification organizations, and we'll go into that in more detail on later shows. But also I want to point out that just because there's a conflict of interest, and I think Lisa made this clear, but I just want to restate it, that doesn't mean it's illegal. Um, and, and you know, I think she's made that very clear on her blog and also in anything that she's stated so far here on the show. It just doesn't look right, doesn't smell right, and there may be good reasons to avoid those conflicts of interest. You know, the, I, the one thing I just want to repeat that she said is that when you have these office, you know, when you hold this type of office, you really have to answer pretty much to a higher authority and just you know, to look doubly clean, I think, was the word that she used, and, and I wrote it down. I think that that's a great way to, you know, to summarize it. Well, we've got a couple of minutes before halftime. Let's move into another topic, and... Uh, I call it MUS. You can call it made-up stuff. You can call it made-up science. Um, I'm just going to let Lisa, can you provide a couple examples or one example of made-up stuff in the industry? 
Well, I mean, Anna, <clears throat> we've been discussing a little bit the 72-hour um, uh, rule within the water damage restoration standard saying that, you know, if it, within 72 hours it could go from Category 1 to Category 3. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily made-up stuff. I'm just trying to find where's the science that backs it up. And so I've, I've put some feelers out and trying to, to determine how did that get written into this standard, where does it come from, um, and having a little difficulty finding that. Uh, because according to that, then, um, you know, with a lot of contents that are involved in those kind of situations, I just want to know how something can go from being clean and then wet with clear water to all of a sudden to a, a black water situation. So that's one example. Within the rug industry, um, some of the made-up stuff that, you know, I, I challenged when I was on the ISRC rug certification uh, technician task force was the concept that you need to know what country a rug is from in order to clean it properly. And, um, I, and I, I actually hear that as well in the RIA course. And uh, I really try to, when I'm training, uh, cleaners in the craft for rugs specifically to emphasize that what they need to know is the fibers, the dye uh, color fastness, uh, the construction type, and any kind of pre-existing conditions. It really, if you have a Turkish rug that's hand-woven wool and uh, machine-made wool kerastan from the U.S., you wash those rugs the same. It doesn't make any difference what country it's from. And that barrier of thinking that you have to be able to identify every single rug that comes in before you can clean it is keeping a lot of people from getting into the craft, which is not serving the consumers. Okay. I want to continue on this topic, so I think we're going to hold halftime uh, a, a little bit. Jim, would you, um, do you have anything that you'd like to add in terms of uh, examples of made-up stuff? Yeah, I, I, from a broad point of view, unfortunately, in all textile training, um, we, we have made up stuff about dye fastness, how pH is understood, how textiles are rinsed, even uh, comments that acid rinses are needed to get protectors to bond, and, and none of this seems to be shown in any type of scientific background. If I could elaborate a little bit about why that's bad. You know, what can happen with made-up science is two things. Now, one, somebody can get in trouble and do something wrong, and it can cost money. But, you know, as Lisa mentioned, knowing the origin of a rug may not hurt anything, but it can send you down a wrong path. What I've seen happens is people can get good conclusions from the made-up signs. They can get something clean. They can restore something. But they don't know why they did it, and they often make commentary or it gets understood that you're getting the right thing for the wrong reason. That still may not seem bad, but you have to think about as an industry grows, like the cleaning and restoration industry has moved from an infancy to a lot of public attention. If we have people that are teaching and saying that this is real science and it's made up science, frankly, it looks really bad, and it makes the people who, who talk about it look bad. And the, the example I always like to give is, you know, a fairy tale can teach a great moral lesson. You can get the lesson. But if you've got a college professor that actually believes in fairies and giants and talking animals, there's a credibility problem. And unfortunately, some of what we're teaching, which on the surface could even seem harmless, 